So, so summer, there's so much going on with summer. One of the problems for me is you get to this point, and I'm sorry, this is going to break some hearts. We're a third of the way through summer now. I know. I haven't touched my summer list yet. And that's discouraging to me, to know that I've had this time and I have this opportunity to get things done and I don't seem to be having any luck. Um, I've got nothing done yet. It's driving me crazy. And so that can get discouraging. And then you can stand there and look at your list and paralysis paralysis can set in because you're like, I don't even know where to start. And so then you do nothing. And that's like the worst possible response. So that's me. I I can stand here and stare at my list and get nothing accomplished. The book of Zechariah is pretty much about just that. Uh, The people of Israel who had been exiled by Babylon for decades have been allowed to return to Jerusalem to begin the rebuilding process. Um, So as we talked about it last week a little bit, when they got there, they got to work on the temple and they began building the temple foundation. And when the foundation was finished, there was this response. There was a a, a really excited response from the young people who had never seen the temple before. They're like, look what we've done. This is amazing. God, ah!" And the trumpets come from the priests and the cymbals come from the the Levites. And so they have this big, just joyful noise thing that's happening. "Ah!" But then there's a group of people, an older group of people who had seen the original temple. And they were just heartbroken. They're like, we saw the real temple. This is junior varsity at best. And this is, ugh. And so there was weeping and, and sorrow. And so, so um, Ezra actually tells us that in that moment, there was so much hoopla from the young people celebrating what they had accomplished and what God was doing in the rebuilding of the temple. And there's so much sorrow and crying and mourning and weeping. And then there, you couldn't tell the difference between the two because it was so loud. After the building of the foundation, the people seemed to have looked around and realized how totally devastated Jerusalem was. They saw the the walls had been ruined. They saw their houses just torn down. Their shops were destroyed. Their their, their homes were gone. Farms had been just just, just decimated. Um, There were now armed squatters living in the ruins of Jerusalem. And these armed squatters, what they were doing is as the people were working on rebuilding Jerusalem, they would attack both verbally and physically those who were trying to do the work. And they had to try to deal with those armed, those armed squatters we'll hear about again in the New Testament. There's the Samaritans. The Samaritans, that great rivalry between the Israelites and the Samaritans. So where do you start when you see such a mess? What do you fix first? And so what the people needed in that moment was encouragement. They needed somebody to not just give them a pep speech. Come on, you can do it. They needed somebody to give them some good, hard, solid truth that would keep driving them. And that's what excites me about the book of Zechariah, is that it's all about encouragement. It's all about fanning the, the flames and, and trying to blow some wind into your sails, trying to keep, just keep going, just keep going. And, and what Zechariah does so perfectly in a number of ways is paints a picture of what it is that should continue to drive us and motivate us to be busy about the task he's called us to. So, so Zechariah chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 2. And you will hear the encouragement from the prophet virtually immediately. <laughs> chapter 1 verse 2 says this, The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. Oh, what good news, huh? 
Frank, I, th- I thought you said this was supposed to be in- encouraging. Well, there is. What God ends up doing is after this, he, he gives the people an invitation. And so, so listen, listen as I continue to read, uh, starting in verse 2 again. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people... This is what the Lord of Armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies, and I will return to you. Don't be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets had proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of Armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they didn't listen. They didn't pay attention to me. So this is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? Do the prophets live forever? Didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants and prophets overtake your ancestors? What, what, what Zechariah says is, 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 there is there's, there's a question I have to ask you. Your, your, your ancestors, who I was very angry with, where are they now? The answer is, they're buried. And the prophets? Well, the prophets stopped speaking because the people had ceased to respond to the preaching of the prophets. And God says, see, see that, that, that's not good. I was right to be angry with your ancestors. Here's the good news about God being angry. God is not angry like you and I are angry. God isn't angry by, when he, he doesn't lash out at people. He doesn't, um, he doesn't you know, hold back forgiveness and then grow bitter after some time. He doesn't hold grudges against people. God doesn't throw tantrums like that. We're told in Scripture that God is slow to anger. And so when he does finally get angry, it's for a reason. Okay, so let me, let me, maybe, let me picture that. So, so uh, how many of you have been to the world's greatest amusement park, Knobles? All right, good. There we go. We got it. All right. Love that place. We had taken, I, I had to do a little research after first service this morning with my kids to see who it was. But uh, we had gone to Knobles. They have one of those log flume rides, you know what I'm talking about, where you get inside this hollowed out log, you go down the water, and it's like splish, splash. It's wee, really fun. Well, Knobles has one where there's a little bit of a, a bridge at the end of it, and so you can stand on the bridge, and when the, the log comes down with the people in it, the water splashes up on you, and you get a little wet. And I remember looking at it thinking, I think if we stand here and there, we, most of the water will miss us, and I could probably douse one of my kids. And so I uh, found out this morning it was Jordan. So Jordan and I went up top. I'm like, here, son, you stand there and I'll stand here. And here comes the log and we're like, hey, and it hit. And this, this wave of water came up over the wall. And if, if I got hit by any water, 90% of it went right up my nose. And it was just like, and he walked away virtually unscathed. So I'm walking down. We're heading to the car. The sandals I had on... Um, had a little water in them for some reason. And I'm walking and it's doing one of those. And it was driving me crazy. So I started to complain. I'm soaked. I'm uncomfortable. We were still going to stop for lunch on the way back. This is so dumb. And my daughter, Amber, who might have been five or six, turned around. She's like, well, you're the one that stood there. And though she was right, after she spent some quality time in her room, um, she's right. I had placed myself there. And yet I was angry about it. God's anger is always deserved. You place yourself in a position where you intentionally and willfully rebel against God. 
don't blame him for the results. You placed yourself there. And, and, and the beauty of how God works is this. If you are still breathing right now, well, there is a chance for you to move yourself from that place as God invites you to repent. I mean, he says it in here. This is the beauty of God's anger is that it doesn't last forever. In verse two, he says, return to me and I will return to you. If you come back to me, then you've got me. I'm coming to you. And so the the beauty in God is that he is faithful and merciful and gracious to forgive us. And in the story of Zechariah, the end of verse six, the people repented. And so the people heard God's call to them and they repented and everything changed. And that's, that's a good thing, but, but even in that great repentance and that great move towards God, even in that, we still need encouragement. We still need, because you, you fast forward about two years. Now, here, let me, let me take a time out and move this way. Um, you're, you're getting an edit. This is why you should always come to second service, by the way. You're getting an edited version of the message that I gave during first service. Not because there was sour language in it or anything. Not that I remember. Um, but because the service went too long um, and I got lost in some of the details. So um, I finessed it a little bit. And, and what I will just say is this. I'm not going to go through all of the visions if you've read Zechariah, you've read some of the visions, and if you're like me, you read the vision and went like, I have no idea. I'm going to be honest with you, I still don't necessarily have any idea. Um, but let me, let me just, I'm going to not go through each vision, but I'm just going to tell you what the visions are talking about so you get an idea of the encouragement that God's trying to give his people. He's talking about his mercy and he's saying, listen, I'm going to be merciful towards you, and I'm going to be jealous for you, and I'm going to demonstrate my mercy towards you by being present with you. It talks about God's justice. Yes, I know these other nations came in, and I know that they, they marched you off and exiled you to other places. I know they were extremely harsh to you, but like a master craftsman, I'm going to come in with the tools of my trade, and I'm going to wipe out those nations. God's blessing a surveyor comes and measures Jerusalem and, 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 he's, and, and Zechariah says, what are you doing? He says, I'm, I'm measuring Jerusalem, but you need to know Jerusalem's gonna grow so big, no walls can possibly contain it because God is going to surround them and, and cause them to grow. The ability of God to renew us. See, accusations are made by Satan against Joshua the high priest. Accusations like you and I face every day by Satan. You know, you know Satan is always accusing you as a believer in Jesus Christ, right? He stands regularly and he makes accusations against you. And, and some of them are just completely trumped up charges. But some of them are true. And so what Satan does is he accuses you of being selfish. He accuses you of being a liar, a cheat. He accuses you getting angry too fast. He accuses you of being a sinner. And you know what? He's right. But the beauty of what happens in this vision is that God looks at Joshua, the high priest, and he puts brand new clothing on him and a brand new piece of of headdress. And he says, see, you're not known by your filth anymore. You're known for what I've made you. 
So while Satan is being completely accurate by calling us a sinner, and he would want us to to focus on that aspect alone, what God is saying is, yeah, 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 you're a sinner who is saved by my mercy and my grace. Focus on that. Satan wants you to plunge into the shame and the guilt. God wants you to rest in his hands of mercy. Then you you go to the next vision, and this one's a lampstand that's got two olive trees next to it that are just constantly supplying the the lamp, the the light with oil so that it never goes out. And that's an image and a picture of the Holy Spirit empowering us to accomplish what it is God has called us to. You get into chapter 5, and then they look to the sky, and there's this giant scroll, 30 feet by 15 feet, that's floating through the air. So, So picture being down at the beach and seeing one of those planes with a banner behind it. And on one side, it talks about the the deception of the people. On the other side, it talks about the theft of the people, and that represents the the very conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, pointing out our sinfulness. (laughs) If you would, take your Bible, go to chapter 5. This one, (laughs) this one's just funny. I had a potential volunteer for this one, but I decided it probably probably wouldn't be good. So here, you ready? Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 5. Let me, let me read the whole thing to you and then kind of explain it. Then the angel who was speaking with me came forward and told me, hey, look up and see what this is that is approaching. Verse 6. So I asked, what is it? He responded, it's a measuring basket that is approaching. Now, just to give you a picture, a measuring basket would be probably two, three feet tall, about a foot and a half, two feet wide, and, and that's what they would store their grain or their wheat or their flour in, just, the, just to keep it in there. That was their storage container. It also measured the amount that was in there. So that's what he sees approaching in the air. And he continues in verse 6, this is their iniquity in all the land. Then a, a lead cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting inside the basket. Okay, so... This one gets a little weird, right? So, so here's Zechariah. He's like, what is that coming towards me? And it's like this basket. Like, and then the next thing he sees is somebody grabbing the top lid, which is made out of lead, pulls the lead aside, and inside there's a lady. Hello. And what's great is that it finishes and says, this is wickedness, or to be more appropriate, miss wickedness. Then he shoves her down back into the basket and pushes the lead weight over its opening. So, so, so here comes the basket. Take off the lead, and then there's, hello. And then he jams her back down, puts the lead back on top of her, and then it gets even weirder as two women approach in the wind with the wind in their wings. Their wings are like those of a stork. So here comes these flying women with stork wings, and they come in and they grab the basket, and they take off with it. And you thought you had weird dreams. The the idea is this, wickedness is being carried away from them so they don't have to deal with it any longer. God is carrying the wickedness away from the people. You go to the final vision in this, and it's in chapter 6, and he's talking about these chariots that come, four chariots that go around the, 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 the nations surrounding Israel, and the ones that go north come back with good news that in the north there is now peace, which that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but the picture is the northern uh, kingdoms, Assyria, were the ones that had come down and wreaked havoc on Judah and on Israel. They continued to invade and make things difficult. And so the report is God has judged them. We no longer have to deal with them any, any longer, and, and now we have peace from them. You get to chapter 7, and this is where we're going to park. The people 
because they didn't find the visions incredibly encouraging, and I don't know why. They're coming to a time in their calendar, and they're really confused as to what to do. It's the fifth month of the year, and every fifth month since they had been exiled from Jerusalem, there was a national period of mourning and fasting that had occurred. Now, it wasn't only the, the fifth month. There was also one during the fourth month, which talked about the, 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 when Nebuchadnezzar actually came in and, and conquered Jerusalem. Um, there's one in the tenth month, which, which commemorated when the actual attack on Jerusalem began by Nebuchadnezzar. And there's one in the seventh month, where this governor um, from Judea, Judea named Gedalia was, was killed. And so, so during those times, they would set everything aside, and they would have a national mourning, a national fast. So here they are in the fifth month, and, and, and they're approaching one of these fasts that has occurred, and so they have a question. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year, the, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Shazrezer, Regim, Melech, and their men to plead for the Lord's favor. I have no idea why they don't just send Bill and Bob. They always send these guys with hard names. Sorry. I've said it different every time I've said it. Ha. So anyway, they send them to Bethel. In verse 3, they come to plead for the Lord's favor by asking the priests who are at the house of the Lord of armies as well as the prophets this question. Should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done these many years? So, so they're asking the question, it's that time again, do we fast? Why were they confused? They're confused because the reason for their fast was the fact that the temple had been destroyed. But over here, they've rebuilt half the temple. So what do we do? Do we fast? Do, do, do we not fast? Am I, am I supposed to be sad? Because if I'm supposed to be sad, I can be sad. Am I supposed to cry? I mean, I can turn on the tears if you need me to turn on the tears. Are we, are we supposed to stay away from food? Are we supposed to put on the sackcloth and rub the ashes all over our face? I mean, what are we supposed to do? You tell us, and we'll do it. And God's response in chapter 7, verse 4 is, Ask the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and in the seven months for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? Why was it you were sad? Was it because my presence was no longer dwelling with you in Jerusalem at the temple? Or were you just sad for yourself? Has this turned into a, a selfish response to something that has happened to you? Are, you? are you fasting for me? Are you fasting for yourself? Are you just fasting because it's a tradition? That's what you do. You fast, so that's why you're fasting. Are you, are you fasting because it, it seems right to do? Or are you fasting because you're not sure what to do? God says, you, you have missed my encouragement. You have missed the point of why you should be filled with joy. So let me explain to you why you should be filled with joy. Chapter 8. Please, if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 8. God asks them the question, so, so why are you fasting? Look at verse 3. The Lord says this, I will return to Zion and I will live in Jerusalem. 
Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of the Lord of armies will be called the holy mountain. He says, wait, hold on, hold on. So, so you're fasting. Why would you fast? God is going to dwell with you again. Why would you fast? <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 4. <clears throat> The Lord of armies says this, Old men and women will again sit along the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of their advanced age. The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing again in them. Wait, okay, so hold on. Picture this. Jerusalem is going to be have, have little munchkins just tearing up the streets, running around, hooting and hollering like kids do. And then sitting along the side of the streets are going to be our, our older men and our older women with their, with their canes in their hands because they're getting up in age and they don't get around so fast. And, and, and that's just a weird thing to say except for this. Jerusalem had been destroyed. There were no elderly people. There was no new birth because they were in exile. So now there's going to be long life and there's going to be new life. So remind me again why you would want to fast. Verse 7, the Lord says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I'll bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. Wait, you want to fast and yet I'm going to bring my people home. What's there to mourn about? Skip down now to verse um, 13. As you have been a curse among the nations, house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you will now be a blessing. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. So, so, so you are going to be a blessing to other people. That makes you sad? Verse 14, the Lord of armies says this, as I resolved to treat you badly when your fathers provoked me to anger and I didn't relent, so I have resolved again in these days to do what is good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So don't be afraid. God says, as I, as I had determined, as I had been fixed and settled on, as I had, had resolved to do bad to those who were sinning against me, I am resolving, I am fixed and settled, I am deliberate to do good to Israel. My plans are good. Why are you fasting? Verse 18, the Lord of the Lord of the armies came to me. And he says this, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth will become times of joy, gladness, and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. Therefore, love truth, love peace. The Lord says, peoples will yet come, the residents of many cities, the, the residents of one city will go to another and say, let's go at once to plead for the Lord's favor and to seek the Lord of armies. I, I will go also. Many people and strong nations will come to seek the Lord of armies in Jerusalem and to, to plead for the Lord's favor. The Lord of armies says this, in those days, 10 men from nations of every language will grab the robe of a Jewish man tightly, urging him, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God says, I'm going to be so near to you and our, our relationship is going to be so very good that there will be people who will come to you so that they can get to me. Why would you fast again? Are you misunderstanding the hope that is yours? So, so how is God going to draw people near to him? How is God going to dwell with them? 
I mean, sure, as you read Zechariah, there is a, a, a certain aspect of this. There's a prophecy that is given to Israel, and it's partially fulfilled in the rebuilding of the temple and the, 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 the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So, so there you have some of the, the, the um, fulfillment of the very prophecy that Zechariah had given here. So, so that's certainly true. But there's more, and I know this is going to surprise you, and it's going to be the greatest plot twist of the day. There's more to the story, and it has to do with Jesus. Hmm. Shocker. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. So how is God going to draw near to his people Chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous. He is victorious. He is humble. And he's riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, there's this great king, O Israel, who's going to come. And he's not going to be riding a war stallion like he's going to battle. He's going to be riding uh, on the back of a donkey, which was a picture of bringing great peace to the place he was going. Who is this, this king that they're speaking of? Chapter 11, verse 12. So then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, you keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me, this magnificent price I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it into the house of the Lord, to the potter. There's sarcasm there in case you're wondering. 30 pieces of silver isn't much. Who is this king that'll draw near to us? The king that they will reject and sell out for a lousy 30 pieces of silver. Who is this king? Chapter 12, verse 10. I'll pour out a spirit of grace and a prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they have pierced. The king will be the one who they will stare at after they've put him to death. And so because of Jesus, we can see this, this, this hope that is given in a much clearer light. I mean, think about it. When God promises that he's going to dwell with his people, there is no better picture of God coming to dwell with us than Emmanuel, God with us, the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. The promise of long life and new life is so much better in Jesus Christ. We have eternal life and, and new life is given to us when we come to Christ and the Holy Spirit is given to us. Folks, he's going to bring his people home. I'm okay with that. He calls us to be a blessing to other people. He says, you are going to be a blessing to other people. Can I remind you of something very important? You have not been redeemed to sit here every Sunday. You have been redeemed to redeem. You have been reconciled to reconcile. So when we get up here and we talk about this nice little quaint saying that we've come up with, let's get off the hill, that's not just to be poetic or sound pithy. It's a command that God has given to every one of his children to get off of whatever hill they're on. And so it doesn't matter 
It doesn't matter if you think you can speak or not. Do you have a mouth? Then you can speak. Oh, but I'm not very eloquent. Wait, I've heard that somewhere in Scripture before. Oh, that's right. It's not about you. It's about the great I am that goes with you. And so he says, you are going to be a, a great blessing to other people. And then and it says, God was resolved to do good to Israel. Man, God is resolved to do good to those who are in Jesus Christ. God is resolved that he will pour out his imperishable inheritance on us. He'll, he'll display the immeasurable riches of his grace, Ephesians 2 says. And I love what John Piper says about that. He says, you know, well, as long as, well, wait, as soon as eternity ends. So think about that for a second. Yeah, that as soon as eternity ends, God will run out of ways of displaying his immeasurable riches of grace in you. It's just going to keep coming. So the joy and the encouragement is what we have and what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. The joy and the encouragement is in the awesome future of God's return. Now, I'll be very clear, and uh, I'm, I'm not jumping into that um, this morning in this text. There are a lot of opinions and views and theologies and, and stands on and debate over the timing of, of the end time things. Okay, and so I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go into it completely, but there are a couple things in Zechariah 14 that we need to look at that will help encourage us as Zechariah would want us to be encouraged. So Zechariah chapter 14, here's some things we can be very confident about. Have you ever heard of the Mount of Olives? Let me refresh your memory a little bit. The Mount of Olives is where Jesus stood with his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. The Mount of Olives is where, where the disciples stood after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And the angel came and visited the, the disciples, you remember? And remember what the angel said to the disciples as they stood there with their mouth open? The angel's like, hey guys, hello, why are you still here? Didn't he give you a job to do? You should get busy about it. Because this same Jesus who just ascended before your eyes is going to return the same way. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 talks about that. On that day, his feet will stand again on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley. So the half of the mountain will move to the north, and half of the mountain will move to the south. Verse 5, you will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones will come with him. So, so, let me, <laughs> this is awesome. I love the depiction of, of like the Battle of Armageddon. As creepy as that makes me sound. I really do like that picture of Jesus returning in the clouds. And, and he's, he is ready to go. And, 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 the, and the, the nations have gathered themselves against him. And they are ready for this, this battle, this war, this conflict that's going to happen. And if you followed what the movies said about that moment, in your mind what you would picture is the tanks aiming up at the sky as Jesus descends and them shooting their missiles and their, their, their rockets at him and Jesus is up there like pew, pew, pew. Right? And that's what you would picture. Then you would picture 
Jesus with his armies and mighty hosts coming with him. And that's you and I. You know, we're all, we're all decked out in our, our battle fatigues. They're white, evidently, Revelation says. To each his own. So we're coming in our battle fatigues, right? And we're going to do some battle. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Now, Revelation's pretty clear. We will come with Jesus when he comes for that battle. I'm, I'm going to use it again and again. I'll see. But we are just his entourage, though. Okay, we're, 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 we are not an active participant in any battle because the battle comes down to this. Everybody's gathering against Jesus. Jesus is returning. And he looks and he says, now. And the battle's done. <laughs> There's no, I mean, it's kind of anticlimactic. Kind of like, hey, but I got my fatigues on. The very word of Christ and his enemies are defeated. We get to be there. You know why we're there? To celebrate what he has accomplished on our behalf. Hmm. In verse 9. And on that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and his name alone. See, in that moment, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So, what does this mean for us today? Today of all days, as we take time out of our service to observe the Lord's Supper together, to do communion together, um, there's, there's a practical application, and so I, I want to make sure I park there. Before I do that, I'm just going to do the logistic part. Um, when I'm done dribbling on here for a little bit, I'll pray. <laughs> um, the music will start, and, and the elements are here on these tables, and we'd ask that you just dismiss yourself quietly from your seats and come forward and um, receive a cracker and juice. It's our, our visual representation of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And return to your seats, and then well, I'll come up and I'll, I'll pray, I'll read some scripture, and we'll, we'll take communion together. But this, this is the practical application for that time. During communion, what tends to happen is this. We examine our hearts as we should. We reflect on our sinfulness as we should. We mourn and grieve over the, the, the harm we've caused to the heart of God in our sin. But then we stay there. We stay there. Are you a sinner who is saved by his grace? 100%. Every single one of us must take our sin seriously. However, we must also take his grace seriously. Too many times we're the ones asking the question, do I mourn? Am I supposed to mourn? Am I supposed to be sad right now? Am I supposed to be quiet? Am I supposed to be like, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. I'm still really sorry, I'm still really sorry. What? Where, where, where? Stop moping. My dad used to say this. 
goodness gracious and toasted oat cereal. I have no idea why I said it. I Googled it a number of times. I've never found it anywhere. If you are in Jesus Christ, man, you're a new creature. You have been saved and you have been set apart and you are a picture of God's perfect workmanship. You're you're a vessel who will, because of Jesus, receive the repeated and the unending infinite love and blessing of a Father in heaven who calls you his child. So in this moment as we observe the Lord's Supper together, in this moment as we take communion together, man, let me, let me encourage you to reflect on this. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so, so for some of us, we're like, well, we do show the Lord's death. That's a sad thing. We, might, we should mourn him. No! For the child of God, that's life. For the child of God, that's redemption. That's, that, that's everything. So every time you receive the elements, you're, you're painting a picture of Jesus' death. Child of God, that is not a bad thing. Yeah, he died for your sins, but not so that you could mope. Not so you would be riddled with guilt, but so that you could celebrate abundant life with him. There's a song, uh, How Deep the Father's Love, and it was running through my head this morning a lot. His wounds have paid my ransom. So now live like it. Boast in it. As often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. See, that, that's a key component of this as well. Because he is coming. When we take communion, we see the elements, what it reminds us of, what it's a picture of, is what Jesus has already accomplished for us. It reminds us that that Jesus kept his word. He said he would lay down his life for the sheep, and he did. He said he would lay down his life, and then he would take it back up again three days later, and he did. He has said he is going to return, and he will. So as you take communion this morning, remember that he died so that you wouldn't have to. And remember that he lives so that you can too. May we not mourn, but instead may we celebrate the fact that our sins have been forgiven and paid in full. Let's pray. Lord, it's been an interesting day. (laughs) My my heart is is full. Um, And and I I still feel like I just didn't paint the picture well enough. So I'm I'm going to confess and I'm going to celebrate right now (laughs) that you painted the picture far better than I ever could by leaving us the instructions of how to observe Lord's Supper. So as we take these moments and we look at these elements, may we not... um, I I pray we wouldn't grieve as those who don't have hope. I pray that we would be reminded that you willingly laid down your life 
And then with power, you took it back up again. And with glory and majesty, you'll return so every eye will see you. God, I, I pray that, that in these moments, the hearts of those who are filled with shame and guilt would trust you and your forgiveness. That they would celebrate, even in their souls, what it is that you've done for them. That finished work. I've said that so many times to say. That finished work. We love you. And I pray that as we observe this picture, we'd be reminded of your great love for us. It's in the name of our precious Savior, I pray. Amen.